You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Find the show on Twitter at Talk of Fame Net. Here are your hosts, Rick Goslin, Ron Borges, and Clark Judd. I was going to ask you guys how your Thanksgiving went, but I know how it went for you, Goose, because I saw your Cowboys on TV, and that wasn't real good. Uh, Turkey's not stadium, Goose, and most of them not at the buffet table. Anyway, um, so instead of talking about Thanksgiving, let's get to the more pertinent stuff. How did you two weather Cyber Monday, or maybe even Black Friday, or both, Goose? I engaged in a little Cyber Friday. I like to create my own path in life. <laughs> Cyber Ron. Friday. I like yeah, I Ron, did you my, find any Brady jerseys for your uh, son? I, I create my own path in, in life the day after Thanksgiving. I go to bed and I stay there filled with food. It's great. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like cyber, a pretty good bath. Cyber stomach. <laughs> hey, Ron, you find any Brady jerseys in Mexico? Believe it or not, they had them on sale. Some guy in the press box was selling them. Well, that sounds like a pretty good deal. Uh, maybe a Cyber Monday or Black Friday. Anyway, the best out deal out there right now, guys. Charge of playoff tickets. And, I mean, you know, once it was unthinkable, Goose, for them to host a, a game at the 26,000-seat StubHub Center. But now, well, now they're only a game behind the Kansas City Chiefs. So it might be time, Goose, to jump for Cyber Monday prices on Chargers playoff seats. You know, I saw the Chargers on Thanksgiving, and Phillip Rivers looked like the 1963 version of Tobin Rote who quarterbacked the Chargers to their only championship that season. Ron remembers that. Yes. The Chargers had a franchise. They've got right now a franchise quarterback and a pass rush, and that's where championships start. Hey, uh, Ron, what's wrong with those Chiefs, by the way? You're in the AFC. What's going on with them? You know, it's it's hard to figure. It's funny. You didn't think that the loss of Eric Berry, you knew it was going to hurt him, but you didn't think it was going to make their whole defense collapse. But that's really what's happened, and that's affected everything else. Now the quarterback isn't playing very well. Tariq Hill has disappeared. He's gone over the hill and around the bend, and they can't find him. You know, the, everything that they were doing early in the season, they, they apparently can't do any of it now. It's shocking. Well, maybe, there's, maybe there's some Cyber Monday deals there, but uh, we're not offering any Cyber Monday deals here on the Talk of Fame Network, especially for the Chargers and the Chiefs. But we do have Hall of Fame semifinalists Richard Seymour and Tony Baselli in the house. Uh, we both had them on before, and they're great. We're going to have Hall of Fame voter Ira Kaufman of Joe Buck Fan. He's going to tell us about all those bucks, and there are three of them all in defense on this year's semifinal ballot for the class of 2018. But first, first we're going to break. When we return, we'll look a little more closely at that ballot, one we have to return, by the way, by December 15th, and see if we can make some early cuts. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. Coaching offense coordinator Mark Stressman, and you probably remember him, um, was with the Ravens last year, got fired. Well, he's up in the CFL now and just won the CFL's version of the Super Bowl. And that'd be the Grey Cup, and he won it for the third time. Only this time, as head coach of the Toronto Argonauts, they upset Calgary to win their 17th league title, the most in the 105-year history of the game. And I know what you're thinking, yeah, well, so what? Well... So a 2012 survey found that Canadians found the Grey Cup, yes, the Grey Cup, not the Stanley Cup, the most important annual event to attend. So take that, Leafs fans. And that was how football was meant to be played in a blizzard. Stadium crews were shoving the yard lines during stoppages of play. And the best part, 
The halftime entertainment, Canadian board Shania Twain, arrived at the midfield stage via dog sled. (laughs) Do you guys know that Shania Twain is from the same hometown, Timmins, Ontario, as the Mahavalich brothers, Frank and Pete? Woo, I didn't know that. Big M. Did not know that. Gooseman, bringing the heat. Well, the one thing that's clear to me, Goose, is uh, the Canadian game was made for Mark Dressman. He's taken all six teams. He goes to the playoffs. He's taken four to the Grey Cup. And as Clark mentioned, he's won three times. I'd say he's found a home. He just needs to be smart enough to stay there. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, nice going, Mark, wherever you are. And thank you, Lucky Star, you're not coaching that offense in Baltimore. Um, well, speaking of the Ravens, uh, their former linebacker, Ray Lewis, as you know, heads this year's list of 27 semifinalists for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But you already knew that. You probably know that former linebacker Brian Urlacher is also a semifinalist for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But what you might not know is that there haven't been two modern-era first ballot choices at the same position since 2006 when Goose's good friend Troy Aikman and Warren Moon were elected, and two first ballot choices at the same position other than quarterback since 1983 when wide receivers Bobby Mitchell and Paul Warfield were elected. So, Goose, will that streak be broken with Lewis and Urlacher? I mean, we already know Ray Lewis' first ballot choice, right? We know that. But what are the choices or the chances he's joined by Brian Urlacher? I'd say slim. The slate is too strong for any one position to dominate the voting, and that includes linebacker, a wide receiver, and offensive line. There are 18 all-decade players among the 25 semifinalists. It's impossible to select a bad class, and we're going to have to tell at least 13 all-decade players that their careers weren't good enough yet. This just caused me great pain just listening to that. that I don't enjoy that. that but I think, you know, uh, his chances are almost zero, and I'll tell you why. Not only does he have Ray Lewis standing in front of him, he's not even the third-best linebacker in his own team's history. You got Dick Butkus, the greatest linebacker who ever lived. You got bug-eyed Mike Singletary. Some guys would say Bill George was better. And some guys would even say, what about Joe Fortinato and Wilbur Jackson? So if you can't get in the top five uh, in your own team, I think you might have to wait a year or two. Maybe Wilbur Marshall, too. Yeah, absolutely. Great player. (laughs) Hey, Ron, uh, let's go back to a question that you keep asking on the show, and it's a good one. Um, does first ballot selection really matter? Because, again, and, and as you rightly pointed out a couple of weeks ago and always point out to me, you know what they call the med student who graduates last in his class, Ron? I do. Doctor. <laughs> yeah, you, are, <laughs> no. you are correct. You know, I, I know, yeah. I, I know I'm, I'm on one end of this, uh, uh, and you guys are more toward the other side of it. I just don't think it's a big deal. And look, I recognize Jim Brown's Jim Brown, or Johnny Unice is Johnny Unice. But in general, I just don't think uh, anybody cares. You're either in the Hall of Fame or you're not. And uh, I don't know. I know a lot of Hall of Famers, not one of whom has ever told me that somebody, while asking for their autograph, said, by the way, how many ballots did it take you, brother? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you're a Hall of Famer or you're not. I mean, it's the most exclusive club in football, less than 1% or around 1% of all the players who ever played make it. And if you get in there, I don't care if you climbed in through the back door and, you know, over the flower beds, you're in there. <laughs> Which the way I'm getting in, be? by the way. Goose <laughs> hey, man, uh, let's bring you in on this. Where do you stand on this? Because, I mean, let's look at what Ron was just saying. He said, you know, it doesn't matter. But, listen, we as reporters and the media often say, hey, the guy was a first ballot choice. Well, I mean, if it matters to us, it must matter to them, right? 
Well, it, it may not matter to Ron, but it certainly matters to the public, and it certainly matters to the television broadcasters who are quick to anoint anyone who scores a touchdown or sacks a quarterback as a first ballot Hall of Famer. And I, I share the belief. There are first ballot Hall of Famers, and there are Hall of Famers. John mm-hmm. Unitas, first ballot Hall of Famer. Bob Greasy, Hall of Famer. Reggie White, first ballot. Elvin Bethea, Hall of Famer. Jerry Rice, uh, first ballot. Charlie Joyner. Hall of Famer. You can count the players deserving a first ballot election on two hands. The right. weight of a year or two or three doesn't mean their bust will have any less shine in Canton. Well, um, I guess the greater question would be this. Um, I, I think we all agree that Brian Urlacher, well, maybe we don't, but Brian Urlacher is least worthy of consideration as a first ballot choice. I, I, I think we agree on that, but, but at what cost? And Goose, this is something you addressed earlier. This class is deep, and I mean, if you were to put him in as a first ballot along with Ray Lewis, somebody's got to go. I mean, Ty Law, Brian Dawkins, Tony Baselli, Kevin Mawai, I mean, they've been waiting. And, and, and they were top ten choices a year ago. They've been waiting. He hasn't, Goose. Yeah, there are 25 players on the semifinals right now, and everyone is deserving of the Hall of Fame. If not this year, then the next or the next. If Brian Urlacher is a first ballot choice, it wouldn't surprise me. He's a former NFL defensive player year, a first team all decade selection. He's deserving of that consideration. But, like the Bible says, many are called, few are chosen. Ooh, fine. You invoke the Bible, so that's your calling. Tell me about it. I know one who's been called, but he ain't been chosen. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, look, that, 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 that's the dilemma, you know. And uh, as Goose and I have learned over the years of our time on the senior committee, the effects of players, what I call jumping the queue, are far-ranging. People don't think about it at the moment that they're pushing a guy ahead of a bunch of these guys that have waited for a while. Uh and they all oh, will get him next year. We'll get next year. But the great abyss is there for a reason because a lot of guys didn't get there because when their right. moment came, they got pushed aside. Well, Ron, let me ask you this. If you're presenting Brian Urlacher and you've presented some guys in the past who were lost causes, Ray Guy was one of them, and he got in as a senior candidate. But the job this year is going to belong to Dan Pompey. And this certainly isn't a lost cause, but um, Dan Pompey of Chicago is going to present Brian Urlacher. You've got to position yourself vis-a-vis Ray Lewis, right? I mean, you know people are going to be saying, why do both have to go in in the same year? Well, we're going to put Ray Lewis in. Why do we have to put them both in? So if you're Dan Pompey, you're presenting Brian Urlacher, how do you approach it? Well, I would, I would stay away from Ray Lewis, and I've always advised guys that uh, uh, there's no sense comparison, uh, comparing uh, a guy with other guys on, on the list. All you do is alienate uh, voters in the room, guys that... Are either going to present the other guy or they they have some good feelings about the other guy. To me, you go in there, you shine your own light on, on what Erlacher's done, and you argue his case and his credentials and his impact. And then, you know, you've got to let the chips fall where they may. But I think comparisons with other active candidates, I think, really in the long run, hurts your candidate, doesn't help. Yeah, and we've seen that happen, I think, in recent years as well. And Goose, um, like Ron, I mean, I, I mentioned it. That Ron has a good case, a good history of presenting uh, cases of uh, candidates. You've got a very solid record of endorsing candidates who make it to the hall. So, how would you go about presenting Earl Lacker's case? And let's make something clear to everyone out there: fans who want to bring up what happened to Ray Lewis off the field, uh, it's not going to be admitted in that room. People, it's not going to happen. It's the field, the locker room, and nothing else. So, how do you present Earl Lacker's case? Ron's got it right. I'd say judge Erlocker based on Erlocker, not by comparing him 
to Lewis. Urlacher went to eight Pro Bowls. That's as many as Hall of Famers Dick Butkus and Willie Lanier. He was an all-decade choice first team, something Lanier and Harry Carson didn't earn. By the mm-hmm. standards already set for the position, Urlach would be a worthy member of this class. Okay, well, let's wrap this thing up. Bottom line, guys, the chances both are elected in the same year. Gooseman? As I said earlier, I think this is going to be a one-player per position class. Yeah, okay. I, I, I agree. I agree. If I'm, if I'm in Vegas, you know, uh, I'm... Uh, uh, I'm betting on Lewis, and I'm not putting any money on Erlacher. Okay. Well, that's going to do it on Brian Erlacher, Ray Lewis. But there are three defensive players from the Tampa Bay Bucks in this class of semifinalists. We're going to talk about them and more with Hall of Fame voter Ira Kaufman, who's from Tampa. That's coming up next. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Well, we promised you Hall of Fame voter Ira Kaufman of JoeBucksFan.com in Tampa. We never, ever renege on our promises here at the Talk of Fame Network. Hey, Ira, how are you? Gentlemen, I was just sitting in my car. I was listening to uh, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, and it kind of reminds me of the 2017 Buccaneers, gentlemen. Uh, (laughs) It's all falling apart. It is all falling apart. <laughs> well, how's Ron's favorite guy doing? That would be the Amish rifle, a.k.a. Ryan Fitzpatrick. <laughs> you know, I got caught up, you know, with the hard knocks and the nine wins last year and their cutter going into his second year and Deshaun Jackson, O.J. Howard. Um, but as I told Rick Goslin a couple of weeks ago, when you, when you can't block and, and, and you can't rush the passer, all, all those shiny weapons, Clark, they don't mean much. <laughs> well, Gordon Lightfoot could be singing any songs about the Tampa Bay Bucks, uh, Ira. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you what, guys. Uh, whatever can go wrong has gone wrong, and now, of course, you add the Jameis Winston cloud, which looks like it's going to stretch into next season. You got a GM that was looking for a new contract, uh, guys, uh, and and the Glazers with a history of firing coaches after two years. Um, it's, it's a mess. I, I think it could be a very tumultuous uh, January. Okay, well, first of all, I, I want to thank you for joining us after that introduction. And secondly, I want to ask you a question here, not about this year's Bucks, but about the great Bucks of yesteryear. Uh, we've got three of them among this year's Hall of Fame semifinalists. That would be Simeon Rice, Rondé Barber, and John Lynch. So my question for you, Ira, which one of these guys makes it as finalists, or maybe more than one, uh, makes it as finalists? And who, in your mind, should make it as finalists? All three, two of the three, just one of the three. I think Lynch will surely be a finalist because he's made it to the top ten, not 15, ten, two years in a row. Um, be shocking to me if Lynch doesn't make it as a finalist. Rondé Barber, I believe, deserves to be a finalist in his first year of eligibility. Uh, joining a very strong first-year class. And I think it would be a stretch, to be honest, uh, for Simeon to go from never being a semifinalist, uh, even though he's been eligible for years. Um, so I think Simeon Rice made progress, and if he doesn't make the finalist list, and I don't think he will, um, it, it's still an important first step, guys. Right, right. All right, in 1999, as you recall, the Bucks reached the NFC title game and held a 6-5 lead into the fourth quarter against the greatest show on turf. And it was one of the finest defensive exhibitions I've ever seen. Had the Bucks held on to win that game against the Rams and became a franchise that won two Super Bowls, would Lynch and Rice already be in the Hall of Fame? 
I think Lynch certainly would already be in, Rick. Um, and I speak uh, uh, from a perspective of a man who's 0 for 4 uh, on his Lynch presentations. Uh, and I'll be in there swinging, swinging away in Minneapolis. Um, Rice, I, I can't say that Rice would already be in the hall, Rick, if the Bucks had a second Super Bowl ring. Although I'll say this. If you check Rice's postseason stats, they're strong. Seven games, seven sacks. Uh, he could have easily been the MVP uh, of the Super Bowl route of the Raiders. Or I think it was locked up at the half when, you know, the guy returned two touchdown uh, picks for a touchdown. As the game went on, I think Rice was the more dominant player. So, you know, I, I think it would be a, uh, certainly for Lynch, I, I think he'd be in, Rick. And for Rice, I think it would give him a much better chance. He would already have been a semifinalist for this year, and, and he would have had a strong shot to be a finalist in 2018. How would you stack those five? In terms of importance and value to the 2002 championship team, how would you stack those five? You know, Rick, it's funny because normally, overall, I would say Sapp would be number one because, as uh, Belichick pointed out to me, uh, he plays closest to the ball. If you don't handle him, he's going to wreck your team. The funny part is, 2002, Rick, wasn't Sapp's best season. Brooks was a monster that year, an absolute monster. Um, I think he returned four uh, you know, picks for touchdowns, then did it again in the Super Bowl. Uh, for that particular season, uh, guys, I would rank Brooks one, Rice two, uh, Barber, Lynch, and Sapp right there. Wow. Yeah, we're speaking with Hall of Fame voter Ira Kaufman of JoeBucksFan.com in Tampa, and we rank him numero uno, number one on our depth chart on the Talk of Fame Network. You can find us on the web at TalkOfFameNetwork.com or on Twitter at, at TalkOfFameNet. And Ira, um, you've covered the league, like us, a long time. So simple question. We have two edge rushers in this group of semifinalists. That'd be Leslie O'Neill and Simeon Rice. Now, if you can, take that Bucks hat off for a second. Which one do you take to the finals with you, and why? Well, I'm going to go. I'm going to go with Rice, gentlemen, uh, and I'm going to keep my buck hat on and argue that Rice did it for two different franchises. Now, let's remember, he didn't join the Bucks till '01, and by that time, he was a force in, in Arizona with some bad Arizona teams. Um, his presence, uh, one year later put the Bucks over the top, made everybody around them better, and made a very good defense. And, and Goose is right. In 99, they had a tremendous defense. In 02, I would argue, gentlemen, I would argue, that is the best pass defense of the modern era, in my opinion, the 02 Bucks. Rice was a big part of it. That was a team by towards the end of the year. They wanted teams to throw the ball. Please throw the ball. Just ask Rich Gannon. And... They were murder. They were absolute murder. They, they killed teams in the, in the postseason. The 49ers went down hard. We know what happened in Philly in closing down the vet. And Gannon was the MVP that year, and he looked like Blaine Gabbert in the Super Bowl. Um, so I'm going to argue Rice, although I think hats off to, to O'Neal, finally some recognition. I think those guys are very comparable. But I think Simeon was a guy you had to game plan for a little bit more. Okay, I got bear with me. I got three things here. First off, that buck hat you're wearing, does it have that feather in it from the creamsicle box? <laughs> it's it's a little smudged this year, Goots. It's a little smudged. Okay, and secondly, secondly, Warren Sapp just called, said, "Tell Kaufman I'm no longer speaking to him." 
Well, we're, we're, we're back where we started then, Rick. We're back where we started. <laughs> and thirdly, my question. Th- those Dungy, Gruden, Bucks already have two defenders in Canton, three others in the ballot. With five Hall of Fame caliber defenders, I'm going to ask you the question we always ask of the 85 Bears. Why didn't the Buccaneers win more titles? You know, I'm going to give a very interesting answer, I believe. And it's a reason why a lot of fans here in Tampa, and I dare say some former Buck players on those teams, are not overly enamored with Tony Dungy and question why Dungy's in the hall because the feeling is and remains. Why didn't they win multiple Super Bowls? Why didn't Dungy win at least one in six seasons? And look, I'll, I'll only speak for what happened before Gruden came to town. Guys, the quarterbacks were Trent Dilfer and Sean King, and Tony Dungy wanted to win, and Rick knows I'm right. Tony Dungy wanted to win 17-13. to 13. He would have been very happy with that. And you can't always win scoring 17 points. Um, I'll tell you this, though. Over that nine-year span, nine years, they never fell out of the top ten in points allowed or total defense, and, they, and teams average less than 17 points against the Bucks over a nine-year span. But you needed a little more offense, guys, a little bit more, and they didn't get it till Gruden came to town and added guys like Keenan McCardle, Michael Pittman, Jura Vicious, put them over the top, guys. All right. Well, I've got a question. We're speaking with Hall of Fame voter Ira Kaufman of JoeBuckFan.com in Tampa. And Ira, I've got a question for you on John Lynch. I want to get you ready for the dentist chair that you're going to climb into when you get into Minneapolis and have to present him. John Lynch never made it as an all-decade choice of safety. But Brian Dawkins did. So it's Steve Atwater and Leroy Butler. So how does that affect John Lynch's candidacy? Why should I take him over three other guys who are all decades? It's a fair question, Clark, and one that I faced in the room last year, kind of out of nowhere. And the only thing I can say, as I answered it, you know, uh, last year in, in Houston, some people's careers don't fit neatly, neatly into a decade. Brian Dawkins' career does. John Lynch started to become an impact player in 96 or 97. He was, his final year was 07. If you string those two, 10 years into a decade, he's an all-decade player. Um, look, I'm trying to sell leadership, intangibles, intimidation for John Lynch. Uh, those are not hard numbers, but uh, I've got a few new wrinkles in this year's presentation, gentlemen. So you better fasten your seatbelt. Ira, <laughs> <laughs> uh, if, if all three of them get in, get to the finals, I think your toughest sell is going to be Rondé Barber. What's your sales pitch? My sales pitch is the opposite, the opposite of John Lynch. Diametrically opposed. I do not want to be penalized for John Lynch's 26 interceptions over 15 years, and no all-decade when I've got another candidate who is all-decade and is a stat machine. I will, uh, I will venture to say, guys, that Rondé Barber is the most unique player, uh, is going to be the most unique player in the room if he makes it to the list of the 15. The most unique, and people like unique. Durability, historic. Numbers, historic. And frankly, Rick, you better come stronger than system cornerback because 
I'm going to take you apart in that room, my friend. <laughs> hey, I, we've got to go before you take him apart. The term is zone <laughs> Thanks corner. for the time. Zone corner. Hey, uh, guys, I do want to mention one thing. The uh, 69 Chiefs have five uh, defensive players, and, 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 and Rick Goslin would argue that they probably should have a sixth, and they only won one Super Bowl. So it yeah, has been done. They won three has AFL titles. They won three AFL titles. Johnny Robinson. Johnny Robinson. Hey, Ira, thanks for the time, and you know what? Good luck. Sir. Selling that buck hat on eBay. My pleasure, guys. Thanks, Thanks. You got it. That was a Hall of Fame voter, Eric Kaufman. Up next is Hall of Fame candidate and semifinalist, Richard Seymour. You're listening to Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Our next guest is not making his first visit here at Talk of Fame Network. But he is making his first visit on the semifinalist of the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and he's doing it in his first year of eligibility. Richard Seymour was a two-gap nose tackle and occasional defensive end for a dozen NFL seasons. For at least half of those, he was considered to be the best defensive lineman in pro football, a reputation confirmed not only by his salary, which he was happy to get, but when he was selected <laughs> to the 2000s all-decade uh, first team at defensive tackle. Two of those players, Michael Strahan and Warren Sapp, have already been elected to the Hall, and Richard is hoping to become the third finalist out of that group when the votes are counted on December 15th to select the 15 players whose names will be put in nomination. Richard, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, and thank you for the warm welcome, too. I'm, uh, I'm sure I think I sent that to you so you could uh, say <laughs> now, now let me ask you a question. Sure. How did you have to bring in the salary in that? Because <laughs> you know me, I'm a bottom line guy. You know me, Richard. <laughs> uh, uh, I definitely appreciate it. It's, uh, you know, it's truly an honor. Um, you know, I, you know, I just think about growing up. Um, you know, working hard with my dad, and you know, being a football family. Uh, you know, always watching football every Sunday, and uh, just to have just to be mentioned with the semifinalists, I, I just think it's a, a tremendous honor, and uh, I feel truly blessed. Well, you know, when uh, uh, I'm the guy who's probably going to have to argue your case and your credentials to the 47 other voters uh, if we get you in the mm-hmm. room, and I'm wondering, what do you think is the it's uh, the most important thing that they understand about the position you played? Since it's clear that sacks seem to be kind of the driving force for a lot of these Hall of Famers on defense, and the position you played didn't really lend itself to as many as uh, as maybe you would have had in another position. So what's the most important thing they need to understand about your job? Well, uh, I think I'll just start by, you know, by saying I, I think you need to approach the game the right way. And, I, you know, I uh, everybody that I played against, uh, I always uh, wanted to earn their respect. And when we left the field, I want them to know that, this guy was going to compete and fight me, play in and play out. And, you know, that's just, that's just the way that I always tried to play the game. I always, uh, you know, wanted to earn the respect. And I think, uh, you know, one of the things I think I'm most proud of, you know, throughout my uh, playing career is, uh, you know, my second year I was voted captain, you know, really on a veteran-laden team. Um, you know, it was my second year out of Georgia, and we had, you know, I was 20 years old and, you uh, you know, uh, a captain um, on a, like I said, a veteran team where you had, you know, Lawyer Malloy, Todd Law, Willie McGinnis, Rabel, Brewski, the list goes on. And, um, you know, I will say, I think um, I learned a lot from those guys. I think, you know, I think it was the best for my career from, you know, uh, it's one thing to be an athlete, but, you know, it's another thing to 
learn to play the game the right way and you have to think through the game. You're going against a lot of complex offenses and, you know, being in the right place at the right time. And, you know, obviously uh, having Coach Belichick draft you, who's a, a defensive guy, a defensive-minded guy, and, you know, arguably at this moment one of the best, uh, you know, minds in football. And for him to draft you in, you know, uh, first, uh, first round, I think, uh, you know, some of the things that I just um, – you know, really hold near and dear to my heart. But, you know, in terms of the system, um, you know, I think uh, you had to be – you had to have the combination of a lot of different things. I think you had to be – if you wanted to be really good, I think. Um, and I always wanted to consider myself an every-down player. I didn't want to – and we had a lot of different schemes, you know, in terms of playing in New England and a very complex system uh, with Romeo Cornell. Uh, you know, we were – you had to be uh, – strong, you had to be athletic, you wanted to be, and I always wanted to be an every down player. I didn't want to come off the field and pass the situations or uh, I wanted them to kick me down inside and, you know, um, being able just to use uh, all the tools in the in the toolbox, so to speak. So, you know, um, you know, that's just the way that I, I always try to approach the game and, you know, um, I was very fortunate uh, to have a lot of good players uh, and coaches around me as well. Richard, did you ever resent the demand to sacrifice personal stats and achievements to play in Bill Belichick's system? And if not, why not? Uh, no, not at all. I just think it's my personality. Um, I think, uh, you know, my, I always – the bottom line is when you win, you just want to continue to win and whatever the team needs, uh, I think, as a competitor. And if you want to be the best, that's what you have to be willing to do. And um, – you know, I was asked to do a lot, but I always thought that uh, if you want to be considered one of the best, I think you have to do all of those things at a at a very high level um, in order to do that. And we were winning. And, uh, you know, so I, I got to go all up and down the defensive line in terms of your five technique over the tackle, over the nose guard, um, which I was glad we got Will for so I could go back out <laughs> <laughs> over, over the guards and the tackles as well uh, after my, you know, first two seasons in the league. So, um, but just having the ability to uh, play all across the front. And, um, you know, I, I just wanted to do those things at a, at a very high level. And, um you know, I just think, you know, you can be creative. You can, you know, work a little bit on every guy across the line and, you know, try to find, you know, uh, you know, mismatches for the uh, for the team and try to exploit those. And that's, you know, we were a game plan team. So wherever the team needed me uh, that week and if it was going to give us the best chance of winning, because um, I'm the ultimate competitor, I think I, my kids will tell you that. And even now, you know, just uh, – you know, talk about playing poker. Is the reason I play because I get to compete at the highest level. So, um, you know, it's just something as a competitor that you know um, you you have to want and you have to want to be in those moments. And I remember just a little story. I, I remember when I was drafted, and uh, this was we were in New Orleans uh, getting ready to play the Rams before the Super Bowl. Yep. And we were uh, we were in the uh, we having pregame meal. Uh, at the hotel, and uh, this was right before the buses got ready to leave and, you know, head off to, to play the Rams. But uh, while we're – I end up having a pregame meal with uh, Coach Cornell, Coach Romeo Cornell, which at the time was our, our defensive coordinator. And, you know, I'm, I'm a rookie, and uh, so I think uh, at that moment, you know, he told me at, at a pregame meal, he was like uh, – because right, uh, he would always call me Big C. All right, Big C, if uh, – 
you know, I, uh, I know you're a rookie, and but if you see something today, and because uh, they had, you know, obviously gained some confidence in me um, and my abilities, but he was he he also gave me a, a big vote of confidence in telling me that um, if you see something today, I want you to uh, don't hesitate. Uh, you have the green light. Go ahead and uh, go ahead and make the plays that you see, or um, just go ahead and play ball. And any mistakes, um, you can you can put it on me. And so. Um, that was just a moment where I felt like uh, the team really believed in what I could bring to the table. And he was a defensive coordinator, um, so he really believed in me. So that was like um, – it was it was huge at that moment for me. You know, 20-year-old kid, you know, getting ready to play in the Super Bowl, like that's, that's a dream come true. And then your coach at that time telling you you have the green light, like – I mean, what else do you really want? So, I, you know, from that moment forward, I, I just think I gained a lot of confidence and, uh, you know, went out and took care of business. <laughs> yes, you did. Now, obviously, everybody yeah. wants to know, they ask everybody the same question. Uh, you play for Bill Belichick. What's it really like playing for Bill Belichick? Is it as uncomfortable as some people seem to make it sound? Is it uh, 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 walk well, in the I, park? I, I, what is I, Yeah, well, for me, I really enjoyed it because um, – you know, I, I always felt like I was getting the best information available, and you could put that with your ability to go out and execute, and you knew you were getting it done. So I always had the utmost confidence uh, because he was always spot on with everything he told us. Like, whatever he told us in the meeting, he could come back and show it to you on film. So it was like uh, balance and check. So he could always show us everything that was going to happen or that needed to happen. And if we did it, what would happen? Mm-hmm. And if we didn't do it, uh, we, we saw the results from it. So um, playing for him, like it was, it was something that um, I always just had the uh, highest confidence in. So, uh, you know, as a player, that's, that's, that's what you always want. Like, I don't necessarily need the rah-rah coaches uh, to get me motivated. I think I want to be self-motivated, but I think I need the coaches that uh, can critique uh, not only uh, the team, but, you know, can be hard on me. And he didn't uh, mind uh, telling or saying whatever needed to be said to any player on the team. So I just think it held everybody accountable. And, um, you know, like I said, I just think that was a, uh, a great start to my career having uh, – Coach Belichick, like not only said draft me, um, have confidence to do that, but um, just playing in that system um, with him, I just think, um, you know, that's just where it was at that time. Mm-hmm. Do you think you'd be a Hall of Fame candidate right now had you not gone to the Patriots? Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Of course. I mean, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, I was talking to uh, Brian Waters um uh, you know, a while back when he uh, obviously was with the Chiefs and I was with the Raiders. And, you know, he was just telling me at that time that he just thought that, um, you know, just giving me a lot of confidence in terms of my game that, you know, I was one of the toughest guys that he played against um, on the interior. And I would just, uh, you know, definitely be a surefire, no-brainer first ballot, uh, definitely playing in, on the inside. But, you know, I just felt like um, whatever I needed to do, I was willing to do that um, for the team's success. Okay, you played in three Super Bowl champions, and you played in a, another Super Bowl. You guys were 18-0. and You were upset by the Giants. Which one of those games do you remember the most? Ah, oh, man. Uh, well, I'll tell you this. The Super Bowl, I, I know the most, the most physical game that 
I played was that year. I want to say it was the 03 Super Bowl or the 04 uh, Super Bowl where we played uh, the Panthers. Yeah, sure. Um, that game was the most physical game that I've ever played in. Like, I mean, I could barely walk back to the hotel after that game. I mean, it, it was uh, it was brutal because they were trying to impose their will on us, and you know, we were, uh, you know, tried to always meet meet that uh, match. So. Um, up front, I, like that's one of the games that I always go back to. I just felt like it was like a 15-round battle because um, they wanted to run the ball down your throat. They wanted to be physical, and, you know, they had a lot of different schemes of plays. So I just I thought they uh, played the game the way they were supposed to be played. Um, I, so I always go back to that game in terms of a defensive lineman. Uh, you had to be – you had to bring the heat that day for sure. Mm-hmm. Wow. Of course, one of the signature plays in that in that loss to the uh, Giants was uh, Eli Manning running around, and you got him by the jersey, and the next thing you know, he gets loose and he flings that ball and it s- sticks like glue on the top of somebody's head. You know, uh, how do you re- how do you remember that play, Richard? And when you see it on TV, do you walk out of the room, or, you, or do you just say, "Well, okay, you know what"? Yeah, I'll tell you a little funny story. I always I saw the referee. Uh, I don't know, maybe a few few uh, few years back. And I was like, man, you had to throw the flag because if you go back and look at it, uh, the center had me around the neck. I was like, <laughs> and then I had him in the grass. So I thought he was going to throw the flag to either holding or throw the flag for, uh, you know, in the grass on the quarterback. But, you know, it's one of those things like it was their day, you know, in terms of uh, when you go back and look at a game, you know, uh, rather it was the the catch on the helmet, uh, Asante always uh, making picks, and he dropped one. Uh, the offense scoring, you know, the highest scoring in the league, and, you know, I think it was like, I don't know, maybe he had a touchdown or something going into the fourth quarter. Right. Like So when you add all of those things together, um, you know, you have to give the Giants a lot of credit. Well, it's been a win-win for us, Richard, having you here today. we got to scoot and pay some bills, but uh, we, always, we enjoy <laughs> having you here. And good well, you luck. got the money. you got the money. Yeah. You pay it. <laughs> I wish I had the money. Well, good luck in your Hall of Fame quest, and we'll have you back on here when you're a finalist, and it could be soon. Absolutely. I'll be glad to come on mid-December sometime with you guys. There we go. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks Richard. Thanks. All, right. All right. Thank you. Right. That, that was Richard Seymour, and this is the Talk of Fame Network. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. We're just about out of time, so... Yep, we're going to the two-minute drill. I have the questions. I hope you guys have the answers, so let's go. Andy Reid says Alex Smith is his guy. Is he your guy? For the next week, anyway. Right, just like Andy. He's my guy until I got another guy. Kirk Cousins says he dreams of ending his career, quote, on my terms, unquote. So what are those terms? Playing for a team that financially rewards him for his talents. Those terms are 10% more than Matthew Stafford's terms. The Colts have blown six second-half leads. What's the problem? No John Unitas, no Burt Jones, no Andrew Luck. I would say this, Clark. They aren't very good in the second half and not good enough in the first half to make the second half irrelevant. (laughs) Complete this sentence. Chuck Pagano has a better chance of what than coaching the Colts next year? Winning the Indy 500. Changing bus tires in Bakersfield. Where is Jim Moore next year? Senior or junior? Junior will be in a TV studio on Saturday afternoons. I think he'll be changing clothes in an assistant coach's locker room somewhere. 
Greg Chiano, Greg Aiello, or Forrest Greg? Forrest Gump. <laughs> Good. Forrest Greg, because unlike the other two, he could always see the forest for the trees. <laughs> Mike Tomlin says the Steelers' upcoming game in New England is, quote, going to be fireworks, unquote. What does that mean? That means the Steeler offense plans to show up for a change against the Patriots. <laughs> means what it always means, Clark, an exploding cigar for Mike Tomlin, courtesy of Tom Brady. <laughs> Dictionary.com unveil its word of the year, and it's complicit. What is NFL.com's word of the year? Complicit. <laughs> Problems, because the NFL's got plenty of them. <laughs> All of fame, LaDainian Thomas says Jacksonville, quote, is the sleeper, unquote, that can beat the Patriots. Your comment. If defense can indeed win championships, the Jaguars can indeed beat the Patriots. My comment is LT, like every kid, has wishes this time of year, but they seldom come true. Hey, why is it Russell Wilson's name included in MVP conversations? Because he's not playing at the same level as Carson Wentz and Tom Brady. And in addition, he plays in southern Alaska. That's the end of the that's the end of our first hour, but don't go away. When we return, you'll hear from Hall of Fame candidate Tony Baselli and get more on the class of 2018 semifinalists. This is the Talk of Fame Network. Listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Find the show on Twitter at Talk of Fame Net. Here are your hosts, Rick Goslin, Ron Borges, and Clark Judge. Welcome back to hour number two of the Talk of Fame Network. I'm Clark, along with Rick and Ron. And in this hour, we're going to hear from Hall of Fame candidate Tony Baselli, as well as dissect more of the semifinalists for the Hall class of 2018. But first, Gooseman. As you mentioned to former Lions great Mel Gray last week, the Silver Dome, where Mel played, is scheduled to be taken down soon with a partial implosion of the building starting Sunday, December 3rd, or about two weeks after the partial implosion of the Kansas City Chiefs, so maybe three weeks after the implosion of the Dallas Cowboys. Yeah, with it's going to go a lot of good memories in that building. You know, the 49ers dynasty in the 1980s began there. Jimmy Johnson suffered his only playoff loss there. O.J. Simpson rushed for a then-record 273 yards on a Thanksgiving day there. And pick a game, seemingly any game, that Barry Sanders played there. Yeah, okay, okay. so I will. No, Clark, I've got to add one thing. i got to add one thing real quickly because Goose left out one of the most significant days in the Silver Dome history. I can't, I can't believe he forgot this. And that was the day that I co-starred with my friend Hugh Jackman in Real Steel. Which we filmed right there in the silver. I can't believe Gooseman that you, Is that that true? you missed it. Yeah, what do you? It's true, of course. Look it up. Go to the videotape. There I am, chasing him into the silver dome about a hundred times. All those women waiting outside, waiting, <laughs> waiting for the autographs. There he is. There he is. He tried to sign. They're looking for Hugh Jackman. <laughs> that was a great well, day. Gooseman, what's your fondest memory of that building? Or, or do you have to wait until December fourth to answer that question? No, in 1995, the defending Super Bowl champion 49ers visited the Silverdome for a Monday night game with the Lions. There were 80,000 there that night, and that building was as wound up and electric as any building I've ever attended an NFL game. Jason Hansen kicked a 32-yard field goal, 70 seconds left, as the Lions handed the 49ers their first loss since that Super Bowl. Wow. 
Well, I don't know what it is about football stadiums, Ron, or football and baseball stadiums in Atlanta, but they have a shorter shelf life than Mike Riley in Nebraska. I mean, the Georgia Dome came down over a week ago after what, 25 years? Right. Yeah, you're right. This owner blackmail and greed just keeps making uh, ever more demands uh, with the sort of veil threat that they're going to leave. You know, going for greener pastures, but it's really greener bankrolls. Well, I'll tell you what else is coming down this segment. we got to go to commercial, guys. But coming up, it's more on our class of 2018 semifinalists. That's coming up right after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Hey, I don't know if you guys saw this, but uh, Goose and you certainly did. Um, the NFL just flexed the December 10th Dallas Giants game, but it flexed it backward instead of being a 425 telecast. It's now a 1 p.m. event replaced by the Jacksonville-Seattle game. Goose, how the mighty have fallen, huh? Not just the Giants, but your Cowboys. This will be the first noon start, start for a Cowboys-Giants game since 2005. Cowboys wow. and Giants used to be eyeball magnets for networks. Not anymore, at least not the rest of this season. Well, but, you know, Ron, it's, it's just not the networks that have given up on these guys. The Giants have given up, too. I mean, they're tanking. They've, they've benched Eli Manning after, what, 210 consecutive starts for Geno Smith? Are yeah. you kidding me? I, I never, ever thought I'd see that. No, I agree with you there, and I, and I thought that uh, uh, gentle Ben McAdoo showed why he shouldn't be a head coach when he offered to start Eli to keep the streak going and then sit him down after the first play. And to his credit, yeah. Eli said, what are you, joking? But to yeah. me, that just shows you this guy is an assistant coach, you know, waiting to go out for the pizzas. He should not be Terrible. in the executive washroom. Yeah, well, uh, Goose, speaking about Eli and, and Ben McAdoo, what do you think this means for Eli Manning going forward and the Giants as well? I think Eli's done in New York. I think there'll be a new coach and new quarterback next year. I don't think it'll be Mackin. I don't think it'll be Eli. You know, they'll yeah. be they'll be market free line in the offseason. This guy's won a couple Super Bowls. It'll be like uh, not to the extent of Peyton Manning, but he'll have his own little market. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And and I think there would be people who want a veteran quarterback with that Super Bowl resume. Um a, a team that's at or near the top in the team I I think of always automatically is is Arizona if Carson Palmer doesn't come back and I don't know that he will. I could see him going to a place like that or some some club that, that feels like if it just had a veteran quarterback and could do something. Yeah, hey, I got an idea. I got a suggestion. How about Jacksonville with Tom Coughlin? Yeah, there you go. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Some, somebody that can yeah. run the ball and block, which right. he doesn't yeah. have in New York. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, let's go to a positive note, and there is one in Dallas. There was a reference on Monday Night TV to the best thing to come out of that city since J.R. Ewing woke up from that dream. You remember that from Dallas? Well, that's our Rick Goslin. Yes, got a national shout-out from Sean McGunn and John Gruden, two-story, during the Ravens-Texans game for his annual special teams rankings. Gooseman, congratulations. You've you know, gone I'm, national. I've been doing those rankings for 38 years. It's nice that they were finally recognized. You know, I, I've always believed special teams have been a vastly underrated aspect of the game. And the Rangers, or excuse me, the Ravens with uh, head coach John Harbaugh and special teams coach Jerry Rosberg, they place an emphasis on the kicking game. Well, you know, Gooseman's being modest here because a lot of special team coaches were getting paid on where they had the Gooseman could have been hanging these dudes out to dry, which he wouldn't <laughs> do. 
<laughs> Me, on the other hand, I would be twisting their arms behind their ears, but not him. But that's why he's a first ballot Hall of Famer, our man Goose. That's, that is correct. That's where we're on the outside and looking in, Ronnie. Exactly. Hey, Goose, um, how peeking much through, Peeking ranking? through those flowers that I told you about. <laughs> it is Goose. Over the, I'll climb on the fence. <laughs> it's Joe Horrigan with a fly swatter. <laughs> How much goes into those rankings? And you know what I mean by that is, I mean, how much time does it take before you're finished? And and then what happens to them? I mean, do you send them to coaches? Are they published in the morning news? What what happens? Well, the, you know, back in the 19, 1980s, they appeared in the Kansas City Star when I was covering the Chiefs, and for the last twenty seven years, they've been appearing in the Dallas Morning News. Yeah, I, most special teams coaches get them. I get requests from college coaches that want them. I only compute them once a year at season's end. Mm-hmm. It takes about five days of numbers crunching to de- determine a champion in the rating in the rankings. But uh, they're a very popular item about that second week of February. I would say yeah, in the future well. you should get those at talkoffamenetwork.com. Yeah. That's where they belong. Yeah. For nine ninety five. That's where they're headed. <laughs> For nine ninety five, <laughs> boys. <laughs> That's right. So we can have Sean McDonough and then, uh, John Gruden saying, Rick Austin's, uh rankings. From the Talk of Fame Network. Exactly. Huh? What? <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, since we're all about shout-outs on Monday Night TV, um, how about Sean McDonough referring to Raiders punter Shane Leckler on that same telecast, Gooseman, as <laughs> – sit down. You're going to have to pack him in ice for this, Ron. A future Hall of Famer, essentially because his punts uh, they go farther than anyone else's. Ray Guy, the greatest punter of all time waited 27 years for his bust. If Leckler retires after this season, he'll be looking at least that long a wait. So book your party space in Canton in 2045. <laughs> Ron will still be there knocking on the door. Exactly, peeking through the flowers. Look, if he's a future Hall of Famer, I'm a future Nobel Prize winner. You know, like, like I understand working with Gruden is not easy, and it might make you a little soft in the head. But you don't go totally off the rails. I mean, dear Lord, what was he talking about? That's, that's absurd. Hey, before the game, Matt Hasselbeck said that, hands down, DeAndre Hopkins was the best receiver in football. Yeah. Because I mean, well, he, well, he never well, saw Julio Jones play or Antonio, Antonio Brown. Brown yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Hey, Ron, by the way, yes. I think you're a future Nobel Prize fighter. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Small N, big P. <laughs> well, we started the show by talking about the Pro Football Hall of Fame semifinals for the class of 2018, and I said that we were going to continue that conversation. Well, guess what? We are. That's what we do here. Uh, Gooseman, we mentioned some of the guys who made it earlier, but how about some of those who didn't? I mean, there were four from last year's list of semifinals who were excluded this year. Which one of those guys did you feel the worst for? Chris Hinton, we had him on the show in the last year. He waited 16 years to become a finalist for the first time in 2017, and it turned out to be a one-year cameo. The guy went to seven Pro Bowls and was a great player on a lot of bad football teams. Offensive linemen don't have stats, and it's easy for them to slide off through the cracks into the abyss. And that's my concern for Chris Hinton as the clock winds down on his modern era eligibility. Yeah, no, I agree with him. I think, you know, Hinton's really an underrated guy. You know, I think... uh, uh, Fred Smurlis, who seems to always get to uh, 25 and no further, but most guys who played against him will tell you what, what a great nose tackle he was. Uh, you know, it doesn't look like he's going to uh, get close, but uh, mm-hmm. I feel sad about that. Well, Ron, um, who was your biggest disappointment in terms of the overall class? I mean, bigger picture, and, and by that I mean someone out there you thought belonged. Doesn't have to be a guy who was in the semifinals last year, but someone out there you thought belonged 
but we didn't make it. Well, I thought that Phil Sims earned a chance to be in there at least one time, you know, and and, and be talked about. Uh, my guess is now he's going to end up like Jim Plunkett, you know, and be somebody that, that, that there'll be a group of people every year saying he's got two Super Bowls, why isn't he in it? Uh, and, but he's not going to get in. And uh, I think that's right. kind of too bad that he didn't at least get talked about once. I'll tell you along with Ron, I'll, I'll say Bill Freilich, like Sims, Neverson Walls. This is his last year of eligibility. This was an all-decade blocker that has mm-hmm. never once gotten in the room, and now he slides into the abyss. Ron, he's now in Ron in my lap. Ugh. Yeah, that's right. Well, as you guys know, um, there are several candidates in their last years of eligibility as modern era choices, like Bill Freilich. But these guys actually made it. It's cornerback Everson Walls, running back Roger Craig, tackle Joe Jacoby. Um, Jacoby and Craig Goose have been discussed as finalists. Uh, in fact, Joe made it the past two years, um, and he was a top ten choice two years ago. But Everson Walls, this is his first shot as a semifinalist in his last year of eligibility, which is, I think, a great story. But the question I've got for you, Goose, is do all of these guys make it to the final 15, or is it just Joe Jacoby? Well, let me start by saying I consider all three of these players Hall of Fame worthy. You know, Craig mm-hmm. and Jacoby, like you said, have been in a room not so. Walls, you know, he ranks fifth among pure corners interceptions, only corner in NFL history, lead league interceptions three times. He deserves discussion as a candidate. This is his final year. I, I hope he's the surprise name of the 15 finalists, and I do think Jacoby will be back. Uh, I think Jacoby is uh, clearly losing losing steam, you know, uh, I, my guess is he'll probably be back there again, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised if not. I'm kind of conflicted with Everson Walls. Uh, I do not understand why he's been denied all these years any opportunity at all. Having said that, uh, you know I really believe so firmly in Ty Law, and I and I think that Everson Walls would be, uh, you know, would complicate matters for him. Uh, but he certainly deserves. Uh, deserves it. Maybe Goose knows why he hasn't had this chance a long time ago. I mean, I don't know what the knock was on Everson Walls. Maybe he does. Hey, Goose, man, quickly, I want to ask you one other question. Can you see any of these guys making a run and sneaking in as one of the final five? They're all, they're all long shots. Yeah, they're, they're all long shots. The, the philosophy of this group is latest is the greatest. These guys all played in the 1980s. Okay. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Well, I also know that we're going to have to sneak out of here for a few minutes and let our sponsors do the talking. But when we return, Goose, man, why kicker from Detroit deserves Hall of Fame attention. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Hey, Goosman, I know you go to the movies, uh, and I also know, I think you, I know, you saw Titanic when it was released. Um, that was 20 years ago. Did you know they're re-releasing it in um, 87 AMC theaters? No, because I read it, and it's starting this Friday, December 1. Are you going to see it? Going to see it again? Nope. I already know the ending. And there's an AMC within a mile from my house, so I could go, but I'll pass. You go, wait a minute, I'm, I'm living the Titanic. I watch the Cowboys every weekend, right? <laughs> Except there's no iceberg for the Cowboys to cling to. <laughs> Are there going to be any survivors? <laughs> Maybe not in the coaching staff. Yeah, wow. Well, 
we're not re-releasing anything here at the Talk of Fame Network, except maybe Ron. Uh, we just released him to a nearby hockey rink for a few minutes. He's up to coach his son. It's more goals. And I think he's having a pretty good season. But uh, we do release weekly polls. And, and Goose, I, I asked you earlier about offensive linemen among the semifinalists up for the Hall's class of 2018. So I know where you stand on this. Um, but we ran a poll last week asking our readers to vote on that very question, um, the offensive lineman that you would put in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And the results were convincing. So you want to tell us what happened? Joe Jacoby won in a walk. He received a staggering 99% of the vote. The Redskins love their hogs, and so do the Redskins fans, obviously. Did he have, I thought I saw a number of, like close to 5,000. Is that correct? That will be a typical Redskin poll. Wow. Wow. That's impressive. Are you surprised? No, I'm not surprised at the passion of the Redskins fans. We've seen it time and time again in these polls. But I am a little surprised at the lack of passion for the candidates, candidacies of Tony mm-hmm. Buscelli, Alan Fanica, Steve Hutchinson, Kevin Maui. Well, those guys are all first-team, all-decade players. I think all five are worthy of the Hall of Fame. But the votes certainly didn't reflect that. Yeah, well, I'm not going to ask you which guy you'd vote for, but um, with Jacoby, would you have picked him out of that list as the first guy to come off the board? Yeah, because he's in the last year of eligibility. Right, right. The other guys are all going to be back in the room for however long it takes. This is Jacoby's last shot. Yeah, okay. Well, as is always the case, there's another poll up now on our website, and that website's talkoffamenetwork.com, and you can go there to vote between now and next week. Um, this one, however, doesn't deal with offensive linemen. Goose, it deals with... Wide receivers. Uh, oh, no, man. no. Who is the most deserving of a bust no. in the class of 2018? Oh, God, don't get me started <laughs> again. Jeez, at least we have Randy Moss to deflect some of those T.O. questions. Hey, you have an early favorite, Goose? Yeah, well, Moss or Owens, I'm anxious to see how this one plays out, but I already know how you're voting. Yeah, this one should be competitive. I mean, we had Mike Martz on here, what was it, about a year, year and a half ago or so, and he was saying, Ike Bruce, you know, how can you not pick Ike Bruce and, and Tory Holt over Terrell Owens? Well, you can do it over Torrey Holt because he doesn't get in the room, and Ike Bruce did get in the room last year, but he wasn't a top 10 finalist, and either was um, Terrell Owens. But do you think either one of those guys gets a sniff in this poll? <sighs> Depends what uh, kind of turnout we get from the St. Louis crowd. No, I think it's going to yeah. be heavy Owens and Moss. Yeah, and, and uh, who do you like? I mean, if, if you were to pick one, who would you pick? I'd probably go Moss. Yeah, me too. Why? Better player. He had more touchdowns okay. and fewer games than Owens. He had uh, 6,400-yard games. Owens had 51. He was the king of the big play in the big moment. First team all decade. Owens was second team. And the thing you told me years ago, which you're absolutely right, you said he's the best bad ball receiver there is out there. And you're absolutely right, because remember we had Dante Culpepper, who wasn't a great quarterback, who had a great season by just throwing it deep and letting Randy Moss go get it. And he did. He did it one Thanksgiving here. He lit up the Cowboys as a rookie. He was upset the Cowboys didn't draft him, and they made him pay, he made him pay for it. Yeah, no, I, I remember that. Um, this is going to be a good poll, Goose. I love yep. you. And so we're going to do it at each position for the, uh, the Hall of Fame here? Yep. We got several polls coming up. Hall of Fame tied. 
when's that quarterback poll coming up? Oh, there wasn't a quarterback in this year's class. Wow. No, that was not amazing. That was an upset. Sorry? That was an upset. Yeah, no, that really was. I, I mean, I looked at him and went, uh, I thought Phil Sims actually had a shot. I, re- I thought he had a shot to get I was something. hoping he did. Anyway. Last shot, last yeah. shot in the room. I, I was hoping we get to talk about him. Not to Well, I asked you about early favorites. I have one, and it's you, Gooseman, except you're already in the hall. That would be Ken, class of 2004. Anyway, that signal, as Gooseman knows by now, is his cue to educate you, me, John McDonough and John Gruden, I might as well. Hey, maybe we're on two if you can find a hockey stick. Anyway, uh, it's Dr. Dad and Goose. Today I hear you're going to talk, tell us about uh, what? Well, let me take uh, you back three months to early September when the weather was warm and the NFL rosters were healthy. Remember how stout the defending NFC champion Atlanta Falcons looked on paper? There'd be no Super Bowl hangover, the Falcons boldly told us. And remember how powerful the Packers looked back then? Not to mention the Seahawks and Cowboys. You know, each of those four teams had the best quarterback in their division and all looked to be in fine shape to repeat as division champions. But as we head into December, the temperatures are considerably cooler and the roster is no longer healthy. The Seahawks are missing seemingly half of their defense. The Cowboys are missing NFL rushing champion Ezekiel Elliott. And the Packers are without their perennial MVP quarterback Aaron Rodgers. As a result, for the second consecutive year, it appears there will be four new division champions in the NFC. At 5-6, and six, both the Cowboys and Packers seem to be doomed to a non-playoff finish. And with the Eagles running away with the NFC East and the Vikings in the NFC North. Seattle is a game back of the Rams in the NFC West. And the Falcons a game back of both the Panthers and Saints in the South. The Falcons face the toughest closing schedule with four games against fellow playoff contenders. The Saints twice and both the Panthers and Vikings once apiece. The Seahawks have games left against the Eagles and Rams. And that's the lesson we can learn from 2017. Never bet the status quo. Unless, of course, you're in the AFC East, where the Patriots have, are situated to win their ninth consecutive division at 14th in the last 15 years. The Patriots are the only team we can trust in today's NFL. Well, Goose, it seems to me, isn't there a lesson here that it's not necessarily the... Um the temperature that makes a difference or um, the, the team that won it the year before, it's the healthiest team. It's injuries. Yeah, it's injuries. I mean, if, if Aaron Rodgers is on the field, this is a different Green Bay team, and I think they're probably right there with the Vikings. If Elliott is on the field, I don't think the Cowboys lose those three straight games. I think they're a mm-hmm. club. Seattle's defense, they've lost their best pass rusher, their best cover corner. You know, they never got their highest draft pick on the field, um, Malik McDowell. Uh, the camp chancellor's gone. You know, it's it's you, you got to find a way to stay as healthy as you can as late in the season as you can. That's why I've always been a fan of the of the later season buy. I'd right, have to have that right. buy third, fourth, fifth week. Give me that buy eighth, ninth, tenth week. Give me a chance to heal up. Second question for you, though. It seems to me the AFC, though, is easier to predict. A, because of what you just said. New England's going to win it as long as Tom Brady's standing. But the AFC North, for instance, I can always take Pittsburgh, and I'm not going to go wrong. They're going to finish either first or second. Um, in the West, you know, I'll, I'll take Kansas City, and I probably won't go wrong, although it may be this year. Um, but it just seems like the AFC is easier to predict than the, the NFC. The NFC seems to be a bigger scramble every year. Well, look at the topsy-turvy nature. The four teams that are leading divisions, none of them made the playoffs last year. You know, where did the Rams come from? 
you know, the Vikings. Right. You know, they lose right. their quarterback in the opener. They lose their running back a couple weeks in, and, and they're sitting there and look like they're the second-best team behind the Eagles. I mean, the Eagles were a last-place team last year. There's such a topsy-turvy nature uh, in the NFC, unlike the AFC where, you know, and the Patriots. So that's, they're a different case. That's, that's like the Three Stooges. You know, why is Mo always a smart one? You know, well, the, the Patriots are Mo, and the other teams in that division are Stooges. Tom Brady is Mo. <laughs> Tell Giselle, would you please? Tell Giselle. <laughs> well, Goose, I liked hearing that so much, I want more. So that's why I had Robert cue that state your case gavel. Hey, anyone here see Sam Waterston? No, because I want to hear from the Goose Man, and I want to hear why you plug former Detroit kicker Jason Hansen for the Pro Football Hall of Fame this week on our website. That would be talkoffamenetwork.com. So let's hear it, Goose Man. Okay, quarterback Warren Moon and defensive tackle Merlin Olson both played 208 NFL career games on their way to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Former Lions place kicker Jason Hansen played in 208 career losses. That's an NFL record, by the way, and it's the obstacle standing in the way of Hansen's own candidacy for the Hall of Fame. He certainly has the credentials for Canton. He played 21 seasons with one team, an NFL record. Only four players in history played more games than his 327, and only three scored more points than his 2150. His 52 career field goals of 50 yards or more are another NFL record. But this may be a case of an employer keeping an employee out of the Hall of Fame simply because the employer didn't win enough. During Hans' 21-year career, the Lions managed only six winning seasons, never managing more than 10 victories in any season. The Lions went 119 and 208 in Hanson's 327 games, including the only 0-16 season in NFL history. The only phase of the game the Lions could count on from 92 through 2012 was Hanson's right foot. He never let his team down. His team let him down. He, he kicked a franchise record 56-yard field goal indoors in 95 and went outdoors in 2008, kicked another 56. He had 19 game-winning field goals of those 119 victories, six in the final two minutes of games. His nine overtime field goals are another record. The offensive struggles forced him to try long field goals. He kicked 188 of 40 yards or more, and that's a record. He was an automatic on a team that was not. And yet, he's eligible for the first time in 2018, doesn't even make the preliminary list of 108. He deserves better. Quickly, stack these guys. Hanson, Nick, Lowry, Adam, Vinatieri. Vinatieri, Hanson, Lowry. Vinatieri's all-time leading scorer, and Hanson, greatest long-distance kicker in NFL history. Thanks, Doc. Speaking of guys who should be discussed for the Pro Football Hall of Fame, we have one coming up. That would be former tackle Tony Baselli. You'll hear from him right after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Well, our next guest is no stranger to us. That's former tackle Tony Bazzelli. He's been on the program twice before, I think, and it's always, always, always a pleasure, especially now, Tony, that you're a Pro Football Hall of Fame semifinalist, I think for the third consecutive year. Anyway, congratulations. Thank you very much. It's uh, quite an honor. Well, the first question for you, Tony, is when we spoke to you three years ago, I remember I wrote a story on our, network, on our website, TalkOfFameNetwork.com. Uh, you were both surprised and delighted that you got as far as you did, and that was the, the semifinals. But now that you're in, as I said, I think the third year, do you assume 
that you're going to reach the semifinals? I mean, do you ever assume you're going to reach the semifinals, especially with what happened this year when you made it to the final 10? Yeah, I don't think I ever assume anything with the process um, because there's so many great players out there. And you look at the crop of first-year guys that came on the ballot this year. And um, so I, I just think it's, and number one, I don't take anything for granted. Uh, number two, it's, it's an honor to be recognized in, at this level. And, you know, you want to be also respectful of understanding there's so many great players that have played this game. So where it goes, we'll see. Um, and I think, Clark, as we've talked about, I mean, I, I have no control of the situation. I played my football. but It is what it is. It's in the hands of the voters, and it's a process that I do trust and understand uh, that it's a lengthy process, and we'll see where it ends up. Tony, the knock on you always has been the longevity, but, but this committee opened the door to running back uh, Terrell Davis, who had a three-and-a-half, actually a three-year, three great years, Hall of Fame caliber years, before we put him in for that career-ending injury. D- d- does that help strengthen your case, do you think, the fact that we have opened our eyes to shorter career guys? Well, I think probably. I think it's probably an argument that people can use that are for, you know, for me getting in. Uh, Terrell Davis is a great player. He, I mean, just one of the great running backs uh, who's ever played the game. It's obviously a short time. Much like Gail Sailors, who revolutionized the style of running and what he did. Uh, TD was amazing in the playoffs and Super Bowl games that he had. So, uh, you know, I think now that, you know, if I make the finals and, and I'm in that room and people are talking about it, I think it's, you know, you can put it in the context of some guys that have made the Hall of Fame with short careers and, and kind of compare uh, my career to that group and kind of see where I stack up against that. Do you look at that group? There, there are four offensive, me, five offensive linemen on this ballot. Four of them were first team all decade. Joe Jacoby was second team. Hutchinson, Fanica, Jacoby, Maui. I mean, all five of you guys are Hall of Fame players. Do, do you look at the field you're competing with inside the, of the bigger field? Well, I'll tell you what I look at. I said that'd be a pretty damn good uh, starting offensive line. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> played right. He, he played right tackle for the uh, Hogs. I could play left tackle. Get two guards and you got uh, Maui at center. I mean, I think I'll take that group right there, and we'll go play anybody on any Sunday and uh, <laughs> see how we uh, end up. So, all great players. I mean, I. I mean, I said it last year after, you know, I made the top ten and people are, and I didn't make, obviously didn't make the whole thing, and people are like, well, you're disappointed. And I said, well, obviously you're disappointed. You want to make it. But I can't look at any one guy and say, well, he didn't deserve it. And it's the same way it's those offensive linemen we just talked about. All of them have great careers. All of them are great players. And I refuse uh, to sit here and, and say, well, I should make it over him because of this or that or the other. I, I, that's not fair to those guys in his career. I respect what they've done too much. I respect the game too much. Uh, they're fabulous players, and uh, I think they deserve all the recognition they get. We're speaking with finalist Tony Baselli in the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at talkoffamenet. And you can find Tony in Jacksonville Jaguars broadcast as an analyst. But, uh, Tony, as most people know, um, Hall of Fame voters meet the day before the Super Bowl, and they cast their ballots. What they might not know is that Hall of Fame finalists, like yourself last year, um, are also in the Super Bowl city, but they sit in their hotel rooms all day awaiting the outcomes of our votes. You did it last year. I would think you might do it this year. How difficult or maddening is that wait, and, and what would you compare it to? Do you have anything to compare that to in your career? You know, it's a great question. It was not a big deal to me until about the last three hours. 
because uh, I was I was working the Westwood One broadcast. I was busy all week. I was there all week. I had family in there. My wife came in. We had a great time in Houston. And even the day of the vote, which is the Saturday before the Super Bowl, I kind of you know went to lunch with my dad, hung out with Mark Brunell. And then it was about three hours before the announcement was going to come, and I started getting nervous and started thinking about it. And I remember sitting there at lunch with it was Mark, uh, my dad and I, Mark Brunell, my dad and I. And I literally just got up and said, all right, I got to go. I just couldn't do it anymore. And, and so I went and sat in my hotel room by myself. I didn't want anyone there. And uh, those were a long two hours. You try not to think about two and a half hours. You try not to think about what, you know, what it means, I mean, to be honest. I mean, at least for guys who played in this league, and I love the game, I love the NFL. I mean, it's been so much to me to be honored and put in that group. I mean, to me, it's amazing. And so you're right there. Uh, it was nerve-wracking. And I remember a couple times, you know, my kids would call me, and I'm like, stop calling me. Leave me alone. And the, and the, and the, and the killer was, you know, the whole deal, as you guys know, is, you know, David Baker's going to come knock on the door if you made it. You get a phone call if you didn't make it. I literally got a knock on the door, and it was the maid. And, uh, and I was like, "Golly, this is just this is crazy." And, uh, and so it was, it was, it was. I and I think we've talked about this. I'm just so you know, my career was it, it was what it was. It's not why I played the game to make the Hall of Fame or anything else. I love football, but it's a huge honor. And I've always kind of taken the approach as if it, you know, when if it happens, it'll be such an amazing thing. But I'm not going to obsess over it. I'd be lying to you if I wasn't obsessing it over the last few hours, and it wasn't driving me crazy. So it was uh, it was a pretty emotional day, and I don't know what to compare it to, but uh, it just it it really shed the light, at least for me, of how big a deal it really is for me and what the Hall of Fame would be. Tony, hey, just a word of warning: if and when David Baker shows up at the door, he may be the one guy you cannot block. No, Dave Baker. I've known David Baker for a long time. Sam and son went to USC and played offensive tackle, a uh, great player, great kid. And uh, I've known David forever. He is the biggest human being I know. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, you shake his hand. I mean, he just everything is huge about David Baker. And also probably one of the most joyful and nicest human beings as well <laughs> that you've ever met. So it's, uh, he's bigger than life in a lot of ways. T- Tony, what would the gold jacket mean to you? Yeah, that's a great question, and I've thought about that, or I've tried not to think about it, but it's hard not as you get into the finals and stuff like that. I think it would just be an honor more than anything else. It would be an honor to be recognized with the greatest players ever to play a game that I've loved since I can remember. I mean, I can remember in 1977 season of watching, as a five-year-old, watching the Denver Broncos, the Orange Crush defense play against the Dallas Cowboys with Roger Starbuck, and on that Denver team was Tom Jackson, Randy Gratishaw, and, and I mean, Red Miller, Red Miller was the coach, and Craig Morton was the uh, quarterback. I mean, and so ever since that moment, and I've loved the game of football more. I mean, it's been my favorite sport. And so to be recognized with the greatest ever to play that game would be an honor, and it would be, it would be so humbling uh, that it would just be, it would be, it would be amazing. I, I don't know how else to say it. Tony, you got a question for you going back to that wait in February uh, when you're in the hotel room and then you find out you didn't get in. Um, was the disappointment of not being elected in, in any way mitigated by finding out later that you're a top 10 finalist? Essentially, 
meaning that you are near the finish line. You're in the launching pad now. To get from 15 to 10 is a big deal. Obviously, to go from 10 to 5 is a bigger deal. But you're in the launching pad now. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, it, you know, the next morning, you know, you find out and you talk to different guys and they tell you how close you were. Um, I guess it eases up the disappointment a little bit. But that night was tough. I'm not going to lie. And I didn't think it would be as tough as it was. Uh, but when they came and told me, I got the phone call that I didn't make it. I still went, I went to the honors show, and you're sitting there and you're watching the guys uh, be recognized as Hall of Famers and guys I played against. And you sit there and say, man, I wish that was me. I mean, but at the same time, I was so happy for him. And I played against Jason Taylor, and I was happy for Jason. He's a great player. I mean, Morton Anderson was a guy who missed a kick that sent me to the playoffs for the first time in my career in 96. I got to go play against Bruce Smith. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it was, it was, so I was happy for those guys, but I was a little bit, it was disappointing, but you wake up the next day and I said, you know what? I got the Super Bowl. I'm working. I, I mean, I was working the Super Bowl for West one. I mean, what a, what a job I get paid to go talk about football, go cover the biggest game in the world. Uh, and so you kind of, you kind of lick your wounds a little bit and go about it. And it was nice though, to answer your question that, you know, people said how close that was and that they think I deserve to be. And we'll see where it goes. You know, it's, it's still a process. I'm only a semifinalist, and there's a lot of great players included in that semifinalist list. Tony, have you developed a bond with arguably the greatest left tackle in NFL history, a fellow Southern Cal alum and maybe one time uh, a future Hall of Fame teammate, Anthony Munoz? I love Anthony Munoz from the standpoint, number one, he's when I was a sophomore in college, I'll never forget, I found a tape, a coaching tape of him uh, sitting around the coach's office and and I wasn't playing as well as I could. It was my sophomore year. And uh, I remember I sat and just watched that tape for hours of how he did it and the, and the techniques. And I tried to emulate Anthony Munoz. And then when I came out, he was working in TV and he covered, uh, he covered the Jaguars a couple of times. We, we really developed a friendship. And, and I just looked up to him. And, and now if you know Anthony, he was the greatest offensive tackle to ever play the game, in my opinion. He's a better human being. He's a better yeah. person. And it's just an honor. It's great to know him. It's great to be around him. Uh, he's uh, uh, and it's it's fun to be attached to him. as far as playing the same position, but also going to the same university. And uh, in my book, he set the standard of how to play the position. You know, it's funny you say that because a lot of people say the same thing about you, Tony. That uh, great tackle, but a better person. And you hear it everywhere. My wife used to work in the league office. She go, "Oh, Tony Baselli, boy, he's one of the greatest guys we ever dealt with." So you hear that about you as well. Um, let me ask you a gratuitous Jacksonville question. I know what you're going to answer because I would ask you, um, could you give us something to take to the Hall of Fame board of selectors that would sell you for that top five? And you go, I don't like talking about myself, so I'm not going to ask you about myself. <laughs> Good, thank but, you. But I do want to ask you about somebody we had on here recently. And I think, I think it was two weeks ago. We had Fred Taylor on here. And Fred Taylor is making his case for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. If you had to get in front of that group and talk about Fred Taylor, not you, what would you tell him? I would say uh, I... I don't know how many backs I've seen who could who had the speed to change the direction and the power at the size he was, like Fred Taylor. I think he's second or third all time in average yards per carry. Uh, he was a dominant back. Um, I don't. In my book, he was the. Now he didn't maybe get the recognition for whatever reason, but if you went and watched the tape and what he did and the numbers that he put up, uh, he was amazing. I mean, he could make guys miss in the hole, but 
with a jump cut and he could run you over at the same time. And I've never seen one person in a game that I played or covered that caught Fred Taylor from behind. Uh, he, he's just, a, he's an amazing player and I don't think he ever got his due. I think he should have been a multiple, multiple time Pro Bowl player. And for whatever reason, he got passed over. He's an amazing back. And if you really looked at it and if you studied it and if you talked to guys who had to play against Fred Taylor, one of the greatest backs to ever play in the NFL. Yeah, yeah, I know he felt that way last year or last summer when he went on Twitter, went on that rant. He explained that to us. He said, well, it wasn't like me, but I felt pretty passionate about my case. Uh, hey, Tony, thanks so much for the time. Really appreciate it. And best of luck again with your Hall of Fame candidacy. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me, guys, and uh, I'll see you around soon. Yes, sir. Thanks, Tony. Yeah. Thanks, Tony. That's Hall of Fame candidate Tony Baselli. Great tackle and a better individual. Up next, it's our two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Well, I see our producer. That would be Robert Harris Jr. is waving his hand. So... That's the two-minute We're going to the two-minute drill. It's going to be quick, guys. Let's go. First year leaders in your Hall of Fame. Pony Express, Dallas Cowgirls, or Raiderettes? Slight edge, the L.A. Raiderettes over the Oakland Raiderettes. <laughs> Absolutely. Football's fabulous females, the Raiderettes. You got it. In battle quarterback, Dak Prescott says critics can, quote, keep questioning me, unquote. So what's your first question? Who kidnapped Des Bryant? <laughs> Good one. My is Miss Z. <laughs> Randy Moss, Sterling Moss, or Kate Moss? Two for the price of one, brothers Santana and Sonoris Moss. Oh, very good. How about this one, boy? Don Mossy, a man whose ears were so big, he was once described as looking like a cab with the doors open when he walked in from the bullpen. <laughs> who's the biggest threat to the Eagles in the NFC? If defense still wins championships, put your money on the Vikings. Ooh, I say themselves. Yeah. Best linebacker in Baltimore football history. Ray Lewis, Mike Curtis, or Dan Hendricks? Mike Curtis is the only one who tackles those who belong in the field and those who don't. <laughs> That's true, but only one of them is in the hall, and it's kick him in the head, Ted. When does Cleveland win a game, or does it? Christmas Eve in Chicago. I'd say the next time the Cavaliers play. <laughs> I like it. How soon before we book Michael Crabtree, Akeem Tlaib? Three on pay-per-view. You're already late. HBO's already booked Ron Borges to provide the color commentary. <laughs> there you go. Conor McGregor already called me to see if I could arrange a match inside the octagon with Aqib Tlaib. Robbie Anderson pleaded for Pro Bowl votes after scoring last week. You voting for him? I agree with the color game's color commentator, Chris Spielman. Try winning the football game before you start campaigning for yourself. <laughs> Good point. But why not? Every team should have at least one guy in the All-Star game, like Little League. Who's the best team in the NFC South? The Saints. They can run, they can play defense, and they have Drew Brees in their back pocket. Actually, it's the Panthers, but, but they don't know it, so it's the Saints. <laughs> Bruce Springsteen has a hit with a one-man Broadway show. Which NFL player is next? Peyton Manning, if he so chooses. <laughs> Living in beast mode, brought to you by Skittles. That's the end of the We want to thank Richard Seymour, Tony Baselli, and Eric Hoffman for joining us. Robert Harris Jr. for producing us and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website, Talk of Fame Network. Find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us on this station at this time next week. We'll be here, and we hope you will be too.